good morning, everybody. Um, it is a huge pleasure for me to be with you all. Um, I was also surprised and excited by the invitation. Um, so I think I'm more excited to be here um, than you guys are probably even to be hearing me. <laughs> um, but I want to tell you a little bit um, about myself, and then I want to open God's Word, and we can learn from it together. Um, so again, yeah, my name is Rachel Beverage, like the drink. It's spelled differently, but um, that way it'll stick in your head. Um, and I'm a missionary in Guatemala, which is right below Mexico, right? So how many of you have been to Central America. So that's Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica. Okay. A lot of you. Okay, great. Um, so I'm, I'm in Guatemala. I've been there for a year and a half. I was in El Salvador for three years before that. And three, um, and for three years before that I was in Costa Rica. So since I graduated from college, I've been, uh, in Central America as a missionary. Um, I would not have liked that term if you would have told me when I graduated from college that I was going to be a missionary because I didn't identify with what that meant. I said, mission has been colonial, mission has been patriarchal mission has been all these things. Um, and it's been a wonderful process of God using other people to help me redefine mission and realize as Christians, we all have to be missionaries, right? Um, so I wanted to briefly just share the, um, the about the program that I coordinate in Central America and then uh, explore this passage together and we'll come back to, to some of my work as well. Um, so the cohort of missionaries is a program that's um, uh, like housed in your denomination. So the CRC is the backer of this program. It's called the cohort. Um, it's a year of serving in Central America and learning at the same time. So it's serving in a local organization that's doing work to support local churches, a lot of different sides of that. Um, and then it's you also get to go through theological and spiritual formation, have a mentor, uh, visit uh, all of the Central American countries um, to get a better idea of what's going on in the context. Because I think, I'm, I hear you guys are a very missional church, so I think you all know context determines what mission looks like, right? So it's not going to be the same everywhere. Um, so that's a little bit about the program that I coordinate in Central America. Um, there's opportunities if you're interested in coming in and serving in Central America. I would love to talk to you about that. So um, let's, let's explore this passage together. It's short, um, so I'm just going to read it. It's Matthew 14, 13 to 14. Um, I don't know if it's going to be on the slide or not, but I'll, I'll read it. It's very short, um, and, then, and then let's see what God wants to show us through it. So it says, and I'm reading from the NIV. Uh, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And that's where the passage ends. Um, so I want us to have kind of one question in the back of our mind as we're reading and exploring this passage. What does this passage tell us about how Jesus did mission? So it's kind of a strange passage. It's really short, and we'll see there's a lot that comes before and a lot that comes after. But I think there's a lot here that if we modeled would tell us how to, how to do mission both here in L.A. and anywhere else that we would go. So um, the first, the first uh, part of verse 13 says, when Jesus heard what had happened. So I'm sure you guys all know your Bible well enough to know that you should always read what comes before and what comes after any given passage. We don't always do it. Um, but in this passage, it's really important. Because how many of you have heard of John the Baptist? Right. Okay, most of you. So really good friend of Jesus. He had baptized Jesus. He was a co-worker in the kingdom. 
He had just been beheaded. And that's the news that Jesus has just received. So when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately or privately to a solitary place. In the ESV, it says to a desolate place by himself. So you get the idea. He's just gotten horrible news. It's really traumatic. Like, it's really sad. It's also been done by the political um, governors of the day, you know, Herod. So he was kind of like in Jesus' group. The same thing could happen to Jesus. There's just a lot going on for Jesus to process. And so Jesus is proactive and says, I got to get away. Okay? So, um, and I'm pretty sure most of us would do that too, right? Um, I do want to point out that this was actually something Jesus did outside of traumatic events too. So in Luke 5, 15 through 16, it says, it says, Yet the news about him spread all the more. So the crowds of the people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So this was something Jesus did a lot. Um, uh, but especially all the more right now when, after he's gotten this horrible news. So it says, the, the second part of verse 13, Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So let's imagine this. You're becoming famous. You're healing people. You're, you're preaching. People want your advice. People are interested in just having you around to do miracles. And you get this horrible news, and you're just like, I got to get away from people. I need some space. And then somebody tweets your location. And you're like, what do I do, right? Um, so... I don't know about you all, but for me, if I showed up and I see all these people, I'm in a boat, I'm coming up on the shore, and I see thousands of people on the, on the, on the shore, I would be like, who did it? I'm going to kill them, <laughs> which is really bad, but that's like what I would feel like, right? Um, I'd say like, oh, wow, I must be really important. Like, look at me, if all these people need me, even though I'm like kind of a mess and need some space. Um, or I'd be just like mad, like, why can't people be respectful and respect that this is my, this is my space, right? So Jesus landed and saw the large crowd. Um, so I'm from Santa Barbara, um, up north a little ways. Has anybody been there? Yeah, okay, it's beautiful. So we have a locals code in Santa Barbara, and that locals code is, if a Hollywood star is around, you don't go talk to them. You don't go try to get an autograph. You might take like a sneaky selfie like across the street, but you don't go bug them. So Jesus gets there, and all the tourists who don't know that that's the local code are there, and they're like clamoring for him, right? So again, I would get on the boat and go to another side of the shore. So what's Jesus going to do? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So there's a lot actually packed into this verse. Um, what comes first? Number one, he saw the crowd. And we're going to come back to this. But to beginning to serve, begin to be on mission, to be just live out a Christian life, we first have to be able to see those around us. And then second, it says, he had compassion on them. It doesn't say he begrudgingly decided to stay and got out of the boat. It doesn't say he knew he had an obligation to them, so he got out of the boat. It says he had compassion on them. Um, remember, again, his friend has just been killed. He's not doing so well, but he's still able to engage the pain and the needs of the people around him. So number three, he healed their sick. Jesus acted according to what the people needed. So that must have meant that there was like evidently people in that group that needed healing, right? 
And then what, what happens afterwards? So not in the passage that we read, but if you read on, um, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In fact, it's the same group that was there on the shore. So that means that there was at least 5,000, because if you remember in the passage, it says 5,000 men. So that means there was more women and children. So let's say, conservatively, there's somewhere between 5,000 and 20,000 people on the shore. That's the crowd that Jesus was looking at when he decided to still land, right? And it helps us um, understand two things. One is that it makes sense then why like, they wouldn't have food later, because they were on this desolate like in this desolate, like lonely place that Jesus had purposely gone to, to like be alone and not near other people. Um, and then it helps us also get a picture of just how big a deal it was that Jesus said, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to go. Cause we're not talking about like five people wanted healing from him. It was a lot, thousands of people, right? So after this, they're hungry. He feeds them. We know that story, right? And then it says he dismisses the crowd in verse 23, if you want to read it. Um, it says he dismisses the crowd. He sends his disciples off on the boat. And then it says he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. So recapping, in the same day, he gets the news that his friends, his friend, his close friend and co-worker in the kingdom has been murdered. He tries to get some alone time in a solitary place. Thousands of people follow him. He has compassion on them and heals their sick. He sees they're hungry, and he finds a way to feed them. And then he sends them away, sends his disciples away, and still goes back up on the mountain to pray. There's a lot more that even comes after that in the passage, but let's just stick with this part. I think in just these two verses, well, and the ones that come after it, we've seen one of the best models for mission that I can imagine. And that's because first, Jesus is intentional about looking for that space to get alone and pray. So I want to dive into that a little bit. Um, if I were to ask you what the things are that Jesus most regularly does in the Gospels, I think we'd all think of healing and preaching and teaching, but I don't know if we would notice how often he gets away to pray, which is why I love the Luke verse that it says it was something he did very consistently. And so um, I want to argue that this is real self-care. So, you know, self-care is like a term we all talk about now. And there's a lot of really positive things in there about how can we care for our bodies, for our relationships, for our mind. And it's not, it's not a bad thing. But I think sometimes, popularly, we also kind of get it, we kind of mess it up. And we kind of confuse it with consumerism. So I, I had a friend um, who was a missionary in Mexico who said, yeah, self-care is really important to me. So what I do is I go to a really nice restaurant where I like the food at least once a week. And I was like, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I like good food. I think most everybody does, right? And it could have positive effects on her life. But if that's her first step in self-care, I'm not really sure that she's going to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish with self-care, right? So I don't think it's also Netflix or shopping or getting your nails done or a lot of the things that we start to justify. Maybe we don't say this is self-care, but we kind of think in the back of our mind that it is, right? Um, and we do them a lot of times before taking time to be alone and to pray. And maybe if we did them afterwards, they would be good for us, but I don't think when they come before that they're actually going to serve their purpose. So I think for me, the criteria around self-care, um, which I'm using that term because that's what we all kind of like talk about now, right? But I think the criteria for me is that do you feel more connected to God's spirit within you after one of these activities? 
Do you feel truly refreshed? Do you find it easier to discern God's will? Or do you feel more tired, anxious, envious, peopled out, overstimulated? So I think here Jesus' example is key. He knew that he needed a break. Um, He knew he needed to get away and be by himself and pray. And even when that break was interrupted, as we'll talk about in a second, he prioritized making time for it later. So you notice that. He tried in the morning. It didn't work. And he said, okay, well, I'll serve people all day, but in the night I'm still going to go to the mountain by myself and pray. So it's a priority for Jesus. And I think if it was a priority for Jesus, and we live in a time that's way more stimulating and busy, um, there's more noise, why would we think that we don't need that as well? I'm guessing for most of us, or some of us at least today, prayer is actually hard. Being alone and quiet is actually really hard, and we do everything we can to kind of avoid it, right? We find ourselves checking our phones. We can't keep our thoughts straight. We start making to-do lists when we, okay, I'm going to pray, but then all of a sudden number you're like on number seven on your to-do list, right? And I don't think that that's a problem. I think that's a reality of the time that we live in, but we need to invite God into that. God's with us in that. We don't have to have it all together before it's actually prayer. So how do we turn the to-do list into something where we say, okay, God, this is actually what's going on in my mind, and I'm handing it to you. Can you help me figure out if maybe some of the things on that list aren't actually what I should be prioritizing today? And inviting God into that discernment. Help me have a good attitude about all the stuff on the to-do list I don't want to do, or help me to just get through the day when I feel like my head's going crazy. Those are the real prayers of real people in this time because it's the time we live in. So if we invite God into that, it's it's the same thing as as Jesus getting away and praying, right? So maybe we're not going to go to the other side of the lake. Maybe we are. Maybe sometimes we need that. But every day if we can say, in my scattered mess, can you be with me? but be intentional about trying each day to get a little more time like that, I think we'll start to see how God can work even in that kind of mess, right? So Jesus needed that time, so do we. And then let's talk about mission. Let's talk about service. Let's talk about how Jesus responded to the people who came looking for him. I think what's interesting in this passage is that Jesus didn't go looking for people to heal. They came to him. So I think this, that that's why, for me, this passage is really important because sometimes we feel overwhelmed by what everybody's looking for from us, right? And so how do, how do we respond? So in this situation, Jesus has tried to be intentional about getting away and being alone. He didn't go looking for something to do besides be alone and pray. But people looked for him. They came after him. So his response here is key. He responds with compassion. And I think if we look at Jesus' ministry, his service, his mission, almost all of it, or maybe we could argue all of it, springs from this compassion, right? And compassion, I think, is what has to move us to action also. I think a lot of other things move us to action, but then they're not really based on the best. They're not—maybe it's it's selfish, maybe it's, you know— 
maybe there's something else that's motivating us, but when we are moved from compassion, our action will be much more longer, longer term um, and much more authentic, and people can feel it. So um, I think the other thing that I really like about this passage is that Jesus was really tuned into what the people needed. So in other passages, it says that Jesus taught. Or, you know, like he gave the Sermon on the Mount, right? But with this group of people, it says that he healed their sick. We don't know if he also taught. The passage doesn't say. But I think what's interesting here is that Jesus somehow decided, with this group of people, I need to heal them. So I think, for me, that was because he was tuned into God's spirit in him and because he was tuned into the people. So he was perceptive. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we can make as people, and I think I see this especially as Christians, is that we try to help people in ways that they don't want to or don't need to be helped. Um, I see this a lot in Central America. So again, I'm a missionary in Central America. I can't count the number of times that I've been evangelized. Like people try to share the gospel with me. And, and that's beautiful, and you can, you can commend people's you know, passion for the gospel. But I can't even get the words out like, hey, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, before they've already like spewed six verses at me and asked me to accept Jesus into my heart. And unfortunately, instead of, in most of those situations, that making me like be interested in the person or whatever, I'm like, they don't see me as a person. They don't know anything about me. And they're just reacting, assuming there's a need that, yes, I need my faith to be strengthened, but... This message they're giving me, I'm usually the one giving it, right? So I also see it from groups that come down from North America and do short-term trips in Central America where there's a lot of assumed need. So people assume that people haven't heard the gospel in Central America. 96% of people in Guatemala, the country that I live in, are Protestant Christians or Catholics. So a very basic, like, Jesus died for your sins message is not something that most people need to hear. Maybe they need it nuanced. Maybe they've never been able to live into it. Maybe they don't really experience Jesus' love. But that message is not, as that message, is not something that's needed. There's a ton of other things that are needed. But there's a lot of assumptions made. Oh, they must not be Christians because we're going there on a missions trip. (laughs) Or they must all need stoves. Or they must all need this or that, whatever. So when we assume that we know what people need without really engaging them, without seeing them, really seeing them, we're going to provide solutions, provide messages that aren't actually relevant. So what's 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 the positive side of it? Or how do we do this well? Compassion has to flow for me from a place of perception and then from a place of empathy. Charity flows from a place of either I feel guilty or I have some excess and so I'm going to give it away, right? But compassion can flow from I really see what's going on here and I feel empathy. And I think that's what Jesus did. So... How do we get this balance right? This Jesus who goes off to pray, but then also in the very same moment where he needs alone time, is able to feel compassion for people. How do we get that balance? For some of us, like me, <laughs> who are rule followers or perfectionists, um, we might be very tempted to dutifully say, okay, so I need to add 10 minutes of alone time and more prayer to my life every single day, and then I need to be serving somewhere else, and I'm going to be fine as long as it's on my checklist and I do it, right? Um, and I think that's a temptation for, for a lot of us. But I think that neither prayer nor solitude, or excuse me, nor, nor service 
should be motivated by that kind of a list. What's the motivation for solitude in prayer? Honestly, I think very selfishly, I think it's one of the motivations, but there could be there should be others as well. But it really is our best self-care. Getting away, turning off the noise, and engaging God with what we are actually feeling and actually thinking is the best way that we are going to be filled up with his spirit, with the ability to make uh, decisions according to his will. It's, it's almost selfish, but it is. We need those spaces. And if you start doing it, you'll want to keep doing it. It won't be a thing on your checklist. It'll be survival. It'll be like, no, I need, I need to talk to God about what's going on in my life, and I need to pause. And then what's our motivation for service? I think it's obvious at this point, but I think it's compassion. When you actually see other people and are moved by their situation, service will naturally follow. So this doesn't mean that we always say yes, and I think that that's a really important thing. It's not that we're always available. It's not feeling like we have to fix every problem that's not ours. Sometimes, actually, Jesus just left people hanging or said, like, let's go to a different town. Like, I'm done here. So it's not about consistently finding problems to solve or people to heal or, <laughs> or something like that. It's not always a yes. But if we're in tune with God's spirit, I think we'll know when those yeses are and when those no. There's something else that I have for you. So I want to share a story about a friend of mine. His name is Nate, and he lives in Guatemala. And he, I was asking him because I was in his town, and several people in his town came up to him asking for money. And um, I asked him, you know, how do you make decisions about who to give money to and who not? And he said, well, right out of college, I had learned about all these structural injustices and the problems of homelessness. And so I decided anybody who asked me, I was going to give them, give something to them. And then after a few years, I, I learned a lot about how uh, people, especially who are living in situations of homelessness, uh, have addiction issues. And so like extra cash can actually be negative towards that. And so I decided I'm not going to give to anyone. And he said, after a few years of that, I realized that the problem with either of those approaches is that I already had a fixed answer, so I didn't have to engage the person. And he said, the solution for me has been Now, I don't go in with an answer to every situation. And that has opened up my heart, he said, to feel empathy or connection or whatever with the person. And also, every single time, I shoot up a prayer and say, like, God, what am I supposed to do? And he said he doesn't feel always God's spirit directing him where to go. He said, you know, sometimes I'm pretty sure that I didn't give and I was supposed to, or that I did give and it probably wasn't the best decision. But he said, I much prefer that and feeling like I'm dealing with a person and that God's inviting me in to consider that person's situation than the strict yes or no. And I love that because I think I think when we're connected to people and we're connected to God's spirit, we're not going to always make the right decision about what am I supposed to share with you or what am I supposed to do with, like, what am I supposed to say? We're not going to always get it right, but we're open to who people really are. And we're, it's a space where compassion can flow. So let's talk a little bit about how this looks for different ones of us. So if you are someone who's dedicated to prayer, you value having your alone time, you set really good boundaries, you prioritize your self-care, I think it's important to ask, have I left enough room for to see others, number one? 
two, to be moved to compassion for them, and three, act in service towards them. Let me just make sure in all of this self-protection and self-care that I haven't taken a step away from people. So, and then if you're some, if you're this other end of the spectrum, which is definitely me, um, that serves in children's ministry, and um, you're on like the board of a local NGO, and you serve the homeless at least once a week, um, and you always find yourself like fixing your family or your friends' problems, I think the question there is: Am I being moved by compassion or by compulsion? And have I really been inviting God into this so that I can discern which of these spaces, which of these things I'm actually supposed to be involved in and which not? So most likely you don't find yourself on one extreme or the other. You're somewhere in the middle. Um, Maybe you're perfect. Maybe you always (laughs) serve out of compassion and find ways to connect with God no matter what's going on in your life. But most of us aren't, aren't, right? (laughs) So I invite us to to those questions, you know. Um, Am I leaving space for God? Am I leaving space for people? Um, And then I want to talk about a few other people who might be either on this spectrum or kind of outside of it. What about people who say, I can't feel compassion for anyone. And that's real, right? There's times in our lives or there's certain people who are just not prone to feeling compassion. And that's where I think the the part that I mentioned at the beginning about Jesus saw the crowds, uh, it doesn't say what he saw, it doesn't say how he saw, it doesn't, but something, something in seeing them created compassion. And so I think one of the issues for us not reaching compassion is that we haven't actually seen people, right? And that mean, that doesn't mean like literally physically we haven't seen them, right? But we don't identify them as somebody who could be dealing with something that we could maybe maybe speak into, or or we have adopted a certain perspective of the media about certain people, and we don't actually really know anything about, for example, right now, all the migrants coming from Central America. I'm terrified by the things I see on the internet and in the media about why these people are coming, because I've, I've met not those people, but people from all these countries, and I know the reasons they're coming, and it doesn't have anything to do with that. So it's a lot easier for me to have compassion. So as somebody living in LA, close to the border, with lots of immigrants from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, which is where people are coming from, I think it's also, part of it is, okay, how can I see? And I think part of that is maybe talking to somebody who's from one of those countries, Part of it can be reading about what's going on in those countries. And if we start to see, we might be moved to compassion. I'm wrapping up here, but um, (laughs) also I think it's important not to make the mistake of comparing pain. So I don't know, how many of you have read things by Brene Brown? She's kind of like a modern-day American prophet. Okay, if you haven't, I recommend that you do. Um, She talks a lot about how we often feel like we can't um, engage people because our pain is so deep. And she says, there's no reason we have to believe that empathy is only eight slices on the pizza. She, she uses this analogy. Empathy grows. So if we are connected to our pain and acknowledge it, we are also able, we don't have to negate the pain of someone else. We don't have to classify. We don't have to say whose is worse. It's all pain. It's all suffering. So if we embrace our own we can also embrace other people's suffering. And if we embrace other people's suffering, we don't have to negate that we have also had pain. That sometimes can be a barrier to us seeing other people and seeing what they're going through and responding. Um, 
I also want to talk just about one more one more profile that I see um, that often happens, and that's there's a lot of people that I see, especially in North America, who work really hard in what they do, and then they say, "I want to serve, I want to go on a mission," and they go for a week or two weeks every year, and they bifurcate or separate their life into the space where I'm working really hard so that I can go on a mission. And the time where I'm here, I'm available, I'm on mission, right? And when we do that, we say the other, you know, whatever, 50 weeks of the year, I don't have to be on mission, I don't have to be serve, I don't have to serve, I don't have to engage that compassion for other people. And I think Jesus is very pleased with what happens on the, that short trip, but also would be a lot more happy if we followed his model into in doing it 365 days of the year, right? And so I think we have to get get away from that model of this is my little box of time where I'm compassionate and I'm open to serving, and this is my other time where I'm not. We have to break that down, and that mean, that's because there's people in the companies you all work for. There's people cleaning your houses or your office or people that are serving you food or people that are just in this church who need you, who need to be listened to, who might have a need you can actually meet, who might need to hear the gospel again just to be reaffirmed. So we have to be open to that. So what does this all have to do with my work in Central America? Um, I think the reason I chose this passage is because it speaks to me. It's been speaking to me over the last few months because needs in Central America are everywhere. They're very visible, right? And that's not to say in North America that they're not. Some are very visible, but there's a lot more that aren't as 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 seen, right? But in, in Central America, in, in Guatemala, um, 80% of indigenous children uh, live are, are malnourished. That's something you can physically see in their bodies. So with needs everywhere, it's easy to get caught up into thinking that I have to be constantly available. I have to essentially be Jesus and save people, right? And so that's where the temptation, you, you move to, I have to be constantly on. I, I am the one that's going to do all of this. And I don't actually have to take time to be quiet and pray because those are not as, that's not an action that's going to get something done as much as doing something, right? But there's also a temptation within that, since need is everywhere, to become calloused to it. And this happens to a lot of people who live there or people like me who have moved there and start to live there for several years. You start to, you can see it, you know that things are messed up, but it's just all around you. And so you start not to feel it. And I want to talk to you just shortly um, one story about a, a friend of mine named Josue who was in the program that I mentioned at the beginning that I coordinate. And he, he is a teacher, he came into the cohort and he did violence prevention, specifically sexual abuse prevention um, for his year in the cohort and he's actually still doing it. Um, but he lives in a very dangerous neighborhood in Santa Ana, El Salvador. So completely run by gangs, completely controlled. He's seen dead bodies. He knows who these young guys are who, that are committing these crimes. He's seen, he's seen a lot of victims of those crimes. And he said, honestly, after this, I just want to get a job and move out and be away from it all. And the process that he went through in the cohort of learning about how God is 
with us in the suffering and how we need to be light in those spaces. And I don't even know at what point it happened, but towards the end of his experience, he said, I quote, the cohort helped me to recover my sense of empathy and sensitivity for both those who commit violence and the victims that suffer at their hands. And I think this was really key to me because sometimes it's easy to see the pain or the suffering of people who are victims. But there's also a lot going on in the people that have hurt them, in family systems. There's so many dynamics. And so the fact that he could start to see these gang members also with empathy and compassion is huge. That doesn't mean that those guys don't need to be brought to justice, but they're people with stories, right? So uh, that's my invitation for all of us, whether it's here, whether you come serve in Central America with us for a year, um, or wherever you go, how can we be drawn into empathy and compassion as a motivator for action? Um, it doesn't have to be across the world. It can be across the world, but it has to start now. And sometimes people think being a missionary is really sexy and your life's like really different. It's not. Like... I have to fight with myself to find empathy and compassion for people, whether I'm living in Santa Barbara or whether I'm living in Guatemala, because it's just life as a Christian, right? So that's my invitation. How can we be a part of what God is doing here in LA or elsewhere where God might send you, but starting from a place of connecting with other humans and seeing that God loves those people? So thank you very much.